Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a great guest today. It is Spencer Taylor, a comedian and writer who's worked on Call Me Cat and Mixedish, but I actually have known her for a very long time. And actually saw the first time she did stand-up. We talk about that and her journey through comedy and into the world of sitcoms and where she's at now. It's a really great chat. But real quick, I do want to mention, if you are in the New York City area, please come out to the Magnet Theater this Thursday, October 13th at 7 p.m. Because my team, Sweetheart, is having our last house team performance at the theater. We might do shows again in the future, but they won't be the weekly megawatt shows, as they are called. So do please come out at 7 o'clock. It is the end of an era, and um, it's bittersweet. But please come out if you can. All right, so Spencer Taylor, she's fantastic, and we have a really, really great chat. Let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Spencer Taylor. It's so good to see you. Seriously, it's been so many years since I've seen you. Yeah, like eight or something. (laughs) I know, it does feel like forever. It was so long ago. We'll talk about when we met in a second but first i didn't realize this but you were born in long island new york mm-hmm. i didn't know that when i originally met you and knew you a little bit i didn't realize that you were how long did you live there i lived there till i was 10 and then i moved to greenville South okay carolina. yeah okay i knew you went to college and high school in south carolina you went to clemson yeah for college and was it after college that you started doing stand-up or were you had you already done that because I think I met you after you graduated actually we met while I was still in school so I was yeah I started doing stand-up I want to say like my junior year in college okay yeah I was like working first towards a a pre-med degree like that's what I wanted to do right and then somewhere around yeah somewhere around junior year I was like comedy yeah so what precipitated that like how did you go no really it's comedy had you always wanted to actually do comedy and you were trying to take the safe route when you picked your major like what was up i've always loved comedy i've been watching stand-up like with my family since i was super little my mom Mm -hmm. used to like joke she said she would put emo phillips on for me when i was like a baby and i would pay attention so i i've always really really liked it but it wasn't i was a very shy person so it didn't seem like something that i would necessarily do but just Mm -hmm. something I enjoyed and one of the things that made me want to be a doctor because that's what I wanted to be is the show Scrubs I really really loved that show and it's my favorite all-time sitcom it's so good it's so good and one of the things I really liked about it is during that time my my aunt had cancer and she was like kind of dealing with that and I saw the need for like a good bedside manner and to have these doctors especially like doctors of color be able to communicate with their patients on a way they understood because a lot of the time she would like come back and she, we'd be like so what happened what and she couldn't quite understand what they were saying so she had no idea what was happening to her so I'm like okay I want to be that and then I did this program called MedX Academy 
and it was during college. It actually paid for my last semester of college, which was pretty choice because I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. But so we did like the whole condensed first year of med school in a summer. And so we were like shadowing doctors and like working with cadavers. And then like sometime like in between that, I was like, you know what I really love about Scrubs? The writing. And it was like, maybe <laughs> I don't want to be a doctor as much as like the person who writes the show Scrub. And and I don't uh, yeah. know, I just switched. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So I don't. I've heard of a ton of people having gone into medicine because of that show and that, and like, honestly, and a lot of people in the medical profession and, and I guess people who sort of fact check medical shows have said Scrubs is the mm -hmm. most accurate, more so than the drama. Right. It's no surprise that it encouraged people to want to do, want to go into medicine. I have yet to hear someone who because of that show, was originally inspired to go into medicine and then turned around and went into comedy. That's a first for me. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> so you decide comedy's actually the way you want to go, and it's still from the same place that inspired you to go into medicine. And you start doing comedy. And I met you, I guess, at my open. Was that, did you, what was the first place you did stand-up? Was it at the open mic I helped run? Mm, I don't, I, that was like one of the first places for sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. The first place I did stand up. So I took a class in Charlotte at like the comedy zone and I completely misunderstood the assignment. We were <laughs> supposed to learn how to write stand up. I thought we had to come with a set. And so like I came and like did a set there. But before I did that, before I tried to set out there, I did a small mic. Okay. I want to say it wasn't Greenville. Maybe it was your actually it might have been your mic. I can't quite remember. It was, was a it, mic in yeah. Greenville. OK, we had no expectations on Mondays at Coffee Underground. And, it was called uh, Underground. That is absolutely okay. true. That was the first time I did stand up. Yeah, and that's still going, from what I understand. It's the longest running it's open mic it. in South Carolina. So that's awesome. That's where you got your start. That's cool. I remember bringing you up on stage, and you were you had you were funny, you were bright, and and happy, and and I I I think after your set it was when maybe it was another time. But I think after the first time I brought you up, I said she's like a huxable kid. Like what? A, she's a good kid. Like everyone, look out for her. She's a you know this young kid here. Let's make sure she's all right. No, they. That was an honor to have you there then. For your yeah, but thank you for like jogging my memory. I wouldn't have. I did that like right before I did the set. You know, at the class because I wanted it to be like somewhere else where I didn't know anyone. I'm still mm -hmm. this way. I don't know if mm -hmm. you were ever this way. Like while performing, I so much more preferred to perform in front of strangers because I'm like if it goes terribly no one knows me like I don't care and then if right. it goes if it goes terribly in front of a friend then you have that awkward drive home where they're like well they didn't get you and it's like oh, I don't want to <laughs> I just I like I'd rather avoid it yeah no I get that I uh did stand up for the first time last week and uh only two members of the audience weren't also doing a set yeah it was my girlfriend and her sister and it is sort of like well i haven't done stand-up in three years and uh <laughs> like i'm gonna do all of these jokes for the first time they went fine but it was still like yeah. first time you know how it is first time you tell a joke is not usually a killer exactly you gotta it's, work uh, work through it someone's like i want to be better than this if they're gonna be in the audience <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, totally. I'm totally with you. If it was yeah, if it was strangers, it would have been like, all right, I don't know. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't know you. <laughs> I have no embarrassing my self in front of strangers, do it every day. Right. Trip, don't care. I don't look around to see who saw. Right. I'm like, I don't care who you Same. saw. 
Same. Whenever I trip, I'm never like embarrassed for that either. Even if someone tried to shame me, it wouldn't work. It's like, oh, like you don't trip. Like everyone exactly. Who cares? I don't care about these people around here. (laughs) Exactly. Who cares? Where are they gonna? So you were in Clemson at that time, but you were taking a class in Charlotte, the stand-up class. Yeah. So I was like driving. I think it was like once a week, I wanna say. Dang, that was a lot of road work you were putting in. It right was. at the beginning. <laughs> and it was my first car. So the car and my parents got it for me. I was so excited. I got it for I I feel like I got it for like my 20th birthday. And it was mm-hmm. a beater. Like it was a stick shift and it oh, was wow. super old. They got it for I think nine hundred dollars and it broke down just constantly. I still loved it, still like have fond memories of it, but I it would break down all the time on the way there. And then I'd have to get AAA and then then they'd fix it or jump it or whatever, and then I'd continue on my way. Oh, awesome. How did that first set go when you got to the class? Worked it, it already. It was it went really well and they were like, Oh, oh, you you did a full set. Everyone else they wanted us to go up and just kind of like talk and get used to feeling eyes on us like while we were on an elevated stage but mm-hmm. i was like i wrote a set if that's okay and they're like go for it and it, it did go well yeah uh, how long was that class what what was that experience like i don't oh man how long was that class a couple months and then they had i think the experience was i'm up two months because i don't think people need to take comedy classes honestly to be able to like do comedy, just go mm-hmm. up on stage. But what it does provide for you, if you're the kind of person who's like, I cannot just go by myself and try this out for the first time, I need like a community uh, of people yeah. who are like cheering me on. It's a good, it's a, it's good for that. Yeah. And so I went, so it got me used to kind of being on stage regularly, which I liked, even though I had at your mic on on stage previously. And the, it, it set me up for, for both success and failure in that they had like a graduation night. And so, mm-hmm. of course, it's all packed out with like family and friends of like everyone who's about to do their first set. And they're so supportive. And so that night went so well that I'm like, oh, I'm awesome at this. <laughs> and so then the next time I did it and I like bombed so terribly, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, it just sets you mm-hmm. up for that because that's not the situation you usually have like at a mic or something. Like right. Yeah. The first, Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And like if, if your first set crushes in front of a a, a crowd that's not a class then that that really sets you up <laughs> yes it's a nice happy environment when it's a class environment you kind of can ease into it that way but yeah I, I i've heard some some war stories from people about doing a set and it crushing and then they never did that well again for like ages you know it's like that's the worst thing that can happen to you is crushing your first time going up yes it is and at the best but i always say the best thing that happened was bombing that second time and it was i was hosting yeah. so the c- club liked me they liked my set and they're like what if you tried some hosting stuff and i'm like well obviously i'm amazing of course i'll try some <laughs> hosting stuff and so then i went and i got it, it to this day i've never got less i got zero laughs from the beginning it's almost impressive to get no laughs not even get a smirk is like that's as much of a talent as to kill the whole time because you have to really try to be that bad. And I was completely shook, but it was such a good experience because I'm like, all right, I survived the worst and the best. So mm-hmm. now I have to like figure out how to survive in the middle. Cause I feel like that's what comedy usually is. It goes, right. it goes really well. There's sometimes where it doesn't go as well. So like thriving in the middle is what you need. Absolutely. My first set ever, the first joke went well. And then the second joke went all right. 
And then by the end of it, you know, sort of tepid, the comics that were there were already looking at their notes again. Yeah. But the first two did well enough that it's like, okay, that gives me enough confidence to feel like I should be up here. And then the others did poorly enough that I got bit with the bug to want to make them better and have yeah. a better set. Yes. That's what you need. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How do I make this better? How do I hone? So... You graduate college and you spend, I guess, a little bit of time in South Carolina, but around 2017, you moved to Atlanta, right? Oh, I went, so I went from South Carolina to Charlotte. I moved to, did a, I moved to Charlotte first, kind of got, that's where I would say I really got like my comedy footing because Mm -hmm. there were just a little bit more opportunities for mics and stuff in Charlotte. So I lived there after I graduated for, I think like two, maybe two or two or three years. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Time. Who knows? And then after that, I moved to Atlanta. So I moved to Atlanta. I think I moved, yeah, at either end of 2017 or early 2018, because I was only there for a year before I ended up moving out here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was wondering is how long you were in Atlanta. And you moved in what, 2019 that you moved to? LA? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you've been there three years. I have. Sounds like it's been going real well. Yeah. It's, it's, I love LA. I love everything about it. Yeah. So what precipitated the quick move from Atlanta to L.A.? Like what what was the move to Atlanta to sort of get your feet in a bigger city where there's some industry there and then things just move so quickly that you were able to go to L.A.? Or were you like, I don't like it here as much and L.A. just seems like the right place? It was it was definitely the former where Atlanta, I had been to Atlanta a couple of times to do sets and it seemed like such a warm, like welcoming city. And it also seemed there was just so many opportunities. And mm-hmm. at that time, it's tapered off a little bit. And I think now it's picking back up, but there was like a lot of industry and, and such there as well. So it seemed like a good move that was financially sound because I was not rich, you know, no, no <laughs> trust fund here. So I, it's like I had to like pay my way there. So I was working at a, as a nanny and I'm like, okay, I can, I can have that lifestyle, still be a nanny and do comedy in Atlanta. And it's a great city for comedy. It really is. Mm-hmm. It's the showcase yeah. city. So you're gonna you're having those longer sets. You're having those ten, those fifteens. Whereas like a bigger city, if I had done L.A. or New York, and you're starting out, you're you're looking at threes and fives. You know, hard to yeah. get great and <laughs> with threes and fives. So yeah, so that was the choice behind moving to Atlanta. And I actually asked. I did a show with Andy Kindler in Charlotte. And I asked his opinion before I moved. I was like, I would love to move to L.A. eventually. I would love to write for television or something. What do you think? Should I move to L.A. or should I move to Atlanta? His advice was move to Atlanta and let your talent bring you to L.A. That's like verbatim what he said. He said, like, L.A. is a very expensive city, you know. And so he's like, I think it would be beneficial to move to Atlanta. So I followed that and it went that way. So I was very grateful that he gave me that advice. Yeah. And so what connections happened in Atlanta? Because there are a lot of people who want to follow in those same sort of footsteps and they want to go to a place like Atlanta and then go to L.A. or even New York and then L.A. What has to come when you're in a place like Atlanta before you go to L.A.? Was it that you got an agent? Were you getting asked to take meetings in Atlanta? What was it? So I was I was really picking up at the end there with how many shows I was doing I was like I felt like I was really making like my myself known in the scene and so I got an email from Laughing Skull I performed there a lot Laughing Skull Lounge great comedy club 
I got an email. It was all cryptic. It's like there's a person of interest in the audience tonight and they want to see you and a select other few com comedians do a three-minute set before the show. And so there was already a show going on. Everyone else was doing five minutes. And I was like, okay. I was all nervous because mm -hmm. anxiety. And so right. I go there and I do my set. And in my opinion, it did not go well. <laughs> it didn't go well. <laughs> the audience was like, mm, like polite smiles, but like I did not kill even a little bit. And so yeah. I went, I, when it was done, I was like, well, whoever the person of interest was, they don't, that that's out the window. But I did get a call later that day and it was from my now. Uh, manager and he was the person of interest and mm -hmm. he was happened to be kind of going through on his way to New York to where he was meeting with some other clients mm -hmm. and he's like yeah I would love to represent you and I'm like are you, are you sure because <laughs> did you see that said it was truly terrible and he, he was like I liked it and so yeah so that's kind of how it happened and he asked what my goals were and I'm like I would love to write for television because to me like the whole appeal of stand-up wasn't being there and like performing as much as it was I love to write the jokes and then yeah. I like to see people react to my writing. That was my thrill. Right. And did he ever explain what it was that he saw? Obviously, he said he liked it. But did he explain what he liked, what he was kind of eyeing and, and saw in your set? Did he ever, like, lay that out? Yeah. Um, he thought my jokes were unique. He said mm -hmm. that they weren't jokes that he'd necessarily heard a lot before. And they weren't takes that he expected. So I think that just trying to stand out. I, tr I always, I Googled my jokes a lot. I was always super paranoid that I'd end up doing the same joke as someone oh, else. Yeah, so I'd yeah. go on Twitter, I'd go on Reddit and like, like really look into them to make sure that it was like my joke. And I guess that worked because he was like, yeah, it stood out just that it was, it was fresh material I hadn't heard and didn't that's expect good, yeah. from, from you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good idea. Cause I had a joke recently. I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you Think of something like, this feels so right. Certainly someone else has done this. Exactly, because yeah. it's too common of a topic for someone else not to have gone down this road before. I couldn't think of having heard that joke. And then I told it, and no one said like, hey, that's so-and-so's joke. So I was like, yeah. I guess it's mine. But it is a good idea to Google before you get on yeah. stage. I should have it's done so, that. It's hard because comics are going to come up with the same joke. Parallel yeah. thinking it's, is it's that's huge. That's going to happen. Yeah, especially It happens now. in TV. Like, it happens co oh, now. Like, comedy, times. I feel the same thing that, like, you're saying, like, now comedy is using the same joke. Like, if you look at TikTok, it's everyone doing the same joke. Yeah, you know? yeah. Internet comedy, especially Twitter and TikTok, because there's a format, there's a, for a, a very specific formula. You know, there's yeah. the nobody colon space no one at all going and yes. then like some video of a person you know, licking a cat and it's like what <laughs> but that that formula is very common and that's what sort of feeds tiktok and feeds twitter are these different formulas that are out there and with late night shows there's a lot of parallel thinking because they're using a lot of the same process to write material and they're all yeah coming up with topical stuff about whatever the president did that day. So so they're bound to come up with some of the same stuff just because, I don't know, it's like if you gave a musician a key to play in and a time signature, they're probably going to come up with similar melodies. Yes. So it's the same sort of thing when it comes to the math of comedy. But yeah, I mean, when you can have original thought that is unique to you and who you are, you are going to stand out. And it is better to try to go for that 
Yeah. And of course, there's always going to be those moments where you do have some something overlapping and then you have to right. either drop it or figure out how do I make this like different so that it's it's yours. Right. It's inevitable. Right. I mean, a lot of people are going to hit the same topic and it's like, OK, but my take is different. And so maybe this is fine or, or maybe it's the same take, but a different direction that you go with it. And that's definitely where it's sort of like, ah, maybe I just shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you go out to L.A., you have a, a manager. It's exciting. That's great. It's what you want. What does moving to L.A. look like under those circumstances? Well, I actually, I got my job before I moved to L.A. Good, so I, I followed Andy Kindler to the T. I'd been writing. I wrote a script now that I look back on it. Meh. And then I wrote a spec script on Always Sunny because it was it's okay. one of my favorite shows and I love it. Great and show. I sent that to him and he sent that to a show called Mixish. And mm -hmm. they were like, yeah, we would love to do a meeting with her. And so I I was shook. I was like, really? Yeah. That's a big, <laughs> big show. Yeah. It's so exciting. I was nanning at the time, had a baby in my arms. I was like, I'm, I almost dropped the baby. I was shocked when I got the call. <laughs> I was like, you. So I had to like fly all the way there. I had they, I, they had to do it that week. I had to fly there and do the meetings i did two different meetings and when it was done i learned that i'd gotten the job and i was just so surprised and they're like you mm -hmm. need to be here within two weeks three weeks or something like that two or three weeks and i was like oh my gosh i have to move so quickly so i like flew back <laughs> in, in a in a in a panic i was like so nervous and like excited and yeah, I got there and I didn't really have too much time to address to even living in LA before I wow. just like jumped straight into work. Wow. Okay. And you were on the writing staff at Mixed Dish. I was. Yeah, I was a staff writer. Let's talk about the structure of being a staff writer because a lot of people don't necessarily know how sitcoms work because they might look at an episode and it'll say written by Spencer Taylor, which you have three written by episodes for Mixed Dish. But it's not that you just sat down and wrote those three episodes and that was it for those couple of seasons. It was actually that you are on staff, you're helping with every episode, but you came up with the story for those three episodes. Is it also the beats for the episodes? Can you help people understand the distinction between being on staff, helping on episodes versus written by you episodes? Yeah. So I knew nothing of how TV worked. I was completely surprised every time I learned something new. I was like, oh, oh, oh. And so every single episode, there's never a, like one person, maybe, the, maybe there's an exception, but one person never writes it. The whole entire room comes together. They come up with, they talk about the concepts together. They come up with, you know, all of the steps together. It's called blue skying. So you sit around, you're like, what if we did an episode about this? What if we did an episode about that? And when it comes to a show like Mixish, where it's very much about the experience of being biracial in America in the 80s, but also today and like how some things have changed, some things haven't. It was a right. lot of the biracial people in the room or people who are in like interracial relationships talking about their experience and then us making episodes out of that. So it came from discussions. So anytime you see like a written by, it's exactly what you're saying. That person, even though in a show like this where it's a single cam and the written by is just by one person, even though that person did go and they wrote the first draft, that first was draft was written after the story board was already created after, you know, the outline was already created. And so they have basically a format and, and then it's the specifics and the jokes that go into it. Even some of the jokes were already pre-written by everyone in the room, but and they give it the first pass and it's never, 
the same as the last pass. By the last pass, it could be a completely different episode. And another thing that I didn't know is sometimes, sometimes you get your name thrown on an episode and you're only there a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you get the written by and it's like, did I write this though? Because <laughs> I was part of the process, but right. like I was also working on this episode and this episode and right. I was in this breakout room or whatever. So, so yeah, it's just very much written by is usually who wrote the first pass, but then that's it. That's all. It yeah. <laughs> and it's a wild process. Even Tina Fey learned going into 30 Rock after all those years working on SNL, even she was a little like oh okay because she has talked about how with sketch and and if ever if anyone ever sees who wrote a sketch on snl it has a ton of names on it because it works the same way as sitcoms where the room is helping out and throwing in jokes and so everyone's name gets on there but that isn't as in your face when it comes to sitcoms. So she was actually yes. doing that, trying to do that same thing. She was putting everyone's name there. And they're like, no, 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 no. You know, that's not how we do <laughs> we it. We don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, just put the one name. It's like, oh, okay. So it's, it is a wild difference. Very, very wild. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the benefits of it is not if you're a staff writer. If you're a staff writer, you don't get a script fee. It's kind of, you're paying your dues, essentially. But if you're not a staff writer and you get the written by, so you get paid for that script. doesn't matter how much you put into it. The written by means that you get an additional check just for having that, your name on that script. So that's another reason that they do it to make sure that like all of the upper level writers who've put in their dues and who've worked on a bunch of shows get that extra money and credit for, you know, doing the show. Right. Oh, that's super cool. I, I didn't realize that actually, that people got a little extra like a bonus, a little bonus, basically. A bonus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually was wondering before you moved out, because I, I since you took a stand-up class, I was wondering if you had taken a class about writing for television or had maybe read about how to write, but since you had done spec scripts, had you read about or, or studied before moving out to LA the structure and how to, how to do it, or were you kind of like reading scripts and then writing your own and sort of winging it. Yeah. So I, I attempted to read some how-to books. I have like rampant ADHD. And for me, it's like, if something's teaching me, sometimes I get like rebellious and I'm like, how dare you? And so I, I tried, I tried very hard to read a bunch of like books about like writing for television and like work my way through it. But I found it was so much easier to me personally to just read scripts, read scripts, mm -hmm. see how they flowed. Because for me, if something's conceptual, I have a lot more issue with it than if it's like, I can read it and I'm like, okay, this is the end product. I see how it flows. I see how the characters are talking. Like it, I get it. I get it that way. So that's what I did. Yeah. That's how I am too. Cause I've read a couple of books and it's like, okay, I feel like I really learned how to do the outline, but I feel like reading scripts helps me more and, and even just seeing stuff. Yeah. This helps me get it more and figure it out more. <laughs> hundred percent. Not that I've ever written a script. I don't know that <laughs> in my future, but it's still nice to learn. It is. Yeah. So mixed issue were you were there. It unfortunately got canceled. It um, did after two seasons. Yeah. Uh, great cast. Clearly a great writing staff. I know one who uh, was a staff writer. It was great. Uh, Fantic. His name is Jesse Esparza, but I was also okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was actually referring to you. <laughs> <laughs> you are now at Call Me Cat, and you have a couple of credits there, like a couple of different job titles, because you are you've been in 
the story editor also you've had some episodes that you've written and did the story by and so that is this is a situation where there's written by there's story by and there's teleplay by is their writer's room just a little different than mixes it was in a lot of mixed dishes (laughs) a mouthful it wasn't a lot of ways so mixed dishes a single cam and this call me cat is a multi-cam and so the difference in that is if you see something where people like to call it canned laughter that's a multi-cam and the reason that they're doing it is a multi-cam is more like a theater play where Mm -hmm. there's an audience and they're watching it in real time whereas a single cam you can cut do it over, cut, do it over. And of course they do that as well in a multicam, but it's supposed to flow a little bit more like a play. Right, right. And so there's differences in that. And then the people who wrote on that show and the people who were in charge came from like Chuck Lorre land. So Chuck Lorre, Uh, like the Big Bang Theory, all of that. And so he had a very specific way he liked writing and he liked to kind of pair people off into twos and have them write. And so that's how when here, who was on Mom and on Big Bang Theory, that's kind of how they came up and how they learned. And so, yeah, we did the same thing where we were put into pairs when we were writing a script. And as far as the teleplay by and all of that, I'm going to be honest, I have no idea. how. It, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes my name was on it. Sometimes was, it wasn't. <laughs> I was wondering what, te- what teleplay was just if it's like dialogue, but not necessarily the story or something. But I have no idea. I've never actually. I I have no. I'm sure there's a reason. But we like like I said earlier, it's like everyone's so engrossed in everything, where it's so enmeshed. Everyone's doing everything together that it's just like sometimes they just put your name on a thing, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's just to you know get you that that paycheck and the due because you either like put extra work into that one or or whatever. Like I can't I can't pinpoint why though. And you don't you know you're not a producer. You don't have to. You're not a producer yet. I'm not. So another thing I didn't know about television is basically it, you. every time you go into a different room, usually you move up a title. And so on Call Me Cat, I, I wrote on season two and I was executive story editor. Whereas on Mixed Dish, I actually had to repeat and I was staff writer twice. So I jumped one title. So it should have gone staff writer story editor and then executive story editor and uh, people always ask like what's the difference and you work your way all the way up to like executive producer everyone's like what's the difference and it's like it's all pretty much all the same job you get more in trouble you know the higher you go if it things aren't going well and um, people expect more of you (laughs) exactly but Mm -hmm. people and people expect more of you but when it comes down to it it's 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 all people writing we're writing a show Mm -hmm. we're doing the same thing everyone's creating yeah that executive producer is oftentimes the showrunner, the person who came up with the idea of the show, right? They're, they, it's all, again, all can be completely different people. So there can be executive producers. <laughs> right. There can be a showrunner who's brought in who didn't have anything to do with the concept. Mm-hmm. And then there's the creator of the show who might, who's mm. also usually like an executive producer yeah. and they get the creative by it. on the show. Yeah. Exactly. It's, completely it could be different. all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds exciting. And are you just loving it? So right now, I actually, Right now, I have taken a break from, I was on Call Me Cat season two, and I learned so much during that, but I ultimately didn't go back for season three because I wanted to kind of like work on my own projects and other things. I have a very, you've seen me, I have, I guess, a darker kind of weird sense of humor. So I I wanted to pursue kind of my my passion of of that type of comedy. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. one of the things I loved about writing on sitcoms is it's 
such a like a fun environment and the shows are made a lot of the time for families and I loved to be able to especially like talk to the kids I was nannying they would watch it and they would talk about it oh, nice, um, yeah. but but I am interested in kind of like writing something a little bit weirder and like more adult I guess yeah, yeah. oh well more power to you I mean like you've always been just such a go-getter and so naturally talented I just feel that something we're about to hear about something right around the corner Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just, I'm developing. I wrote a feature, which was long. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't believe how long they are. I'm like, oh my gosh, nine, 90 plus pages. What are we doing here? Because, you know, <laughs> typically 22 pages, you right, know, for, right. for a regular TV script. Actually. Right, it's a page, a, a, a page is a minute and shows are sitcoms are 22 minutes. Yes. Yeah, wild, wild. Well, awesome. I guess you can't tell us what the project is more more specifically since it's, you know, I I can't. Being, I, I will say one of them bought hasn't come out yet. You can't you can't give away the secrets. I can't. I can say one of them, but the feature I can say it's about dogs because I mean it's fine. So I can say that. That's all I'll say. And then as far as like the development, of course, NDAs and stuff. So I can't talk about it. But hopefully right. it would be it would be cool. I can say it's like in the animated realm, and it would be neat if I was able to sell that. So yeah, well, I'm I'm I am rooting for you. I think you're great. You deserve it. Thank you. What is the writer's room like as far as when ideas are coming? Because I've not been in a writer's room. And so is it just a lot of pitches and then people adding to it? I don't know if you ever did improv. Does it feel like an improv space? Like, what is that experience like? I have done improv. I did it like Dad's Garage. I took classes oh, there. Yeah, awesome. I really love Dad's yeah. Garage. Fantastic place. But yes, yeah, so I... It, it it's a little bit of both it's it, there is people who are good at improv definitely thrive in writer's room because it the job is yes ending it's yeah. taking ideas and saying like how can we make this better how can we make this work how can we satisfy the notes from the networks and the studios how can we satisfy like everyone in our and keep it real to ourselves so it's a lot of that it's a lot of what ifs like so we're sitting there and we're like okay what if this character moved in this way and then kind of relating it to the best shows and like the the best way in my opinion to write is like how is this related relatable to stuff we've actually experienced because it Mm -hmm. feels more genuine you're able to say this is what i did in that situation then you might have someone else you know from a different walk of life who's also a writer in the room say well this is what i did in that situation then all of a sudden you have a conversation going Mm -hmm. and you know that like this particular character could go this way or that way because that that's what these two people did so it's a lot of that it's also a lot of just sitting around silently like like working out problems in your mind where it's like oh my gosh how do we fix this because every once in a while you'll get a note you know from the network or studio that you have to incorporate incorporate or that like an issue they have with the script and it's like okay how do we fix that and sometimes that just looks like people sitting silently and playing with play-doh or whatever (laughs) yeah so is it thing all the time then or it sounds like it's not necessarily it sounds like there there are moments where there's nothing there's no laughing there's no talking. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely moments of nothing. But one of the things I will say is that I, it's a job. I think yeah. a lot of people have this idea that like, if you get a quote unquote dream job, that it won't be work. Like if you do what it you love, you won't work. work. It is very much still, still yeah, a lot of right. very hard work. Um, right. But yeah, there was when you laughter. get on a level working at a, at a studio or working at a network, you know, anything that's at the top of the industry. That's that's a lot of work. It's a lot it's of a hard lot work. Of work. Yes, a hundred percent. But I will say so much laughter. I one of, that was one of my favorite parts is that 
you're surrounded by people who have professionally been funny, some mm -hmm. of them longer than, you know, I've been an adult. And mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. learning from them and being able to like experience things with them and then seeing them as quote unquote peers. It's just, it's a wild thing. Yeah. And so I, I cracked up constantly to the point we would all laugh to the point of crying at least, you know, like every, weekly at least, but usually like once a day, it was, it's, it's a lot of fun to be in a room with a bunch of funny people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So with such a busy schedule, have you been able to do much stand up? Since Actually, it's there. so funny that you said that you did it for I did it for the first time in like over a year yesterday. Oh, <laughs> so uh, I went yeah. to a mic yesterday and I was like, let's see if I still am doing this. <laughs> it's just not conducive. And I'm sure some people who are yeah. wired way differently than me because I value sleep <laughs> and can like <laughs> can work till 12 a.m. and then go do a mic. Right. But I, that, I am not that person. So so for me, I was just like, no, this is going on the back burner. But yeah. I've done some, I did some like throughout, usually throughout 2019 for sure, at the beginning of 2020. And then of course everything shut down. And then now I guess I'm kind of like picking back up. I did a couple sets last year, but that was it. Does it, is doing stand up something you can use to sort of help break an idea for a sitcom episode? Like, did you ever take a premise yeah. and try it on a crowd just to see how they, how it went over to see if it was worth bringing into work? You know, it's funny. It, opposite, I guess I would say is that <laughs> I did, I had explained some stand-up bits that I've done in, in the room and like elements of that can be incorporated into a script. Okay. And so, yeah, I do think it is conducive, but like not necessarily like, is this going, I, I never like took an idea that we had in the room and presented it like on stage or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was wondering if there was, you know, if you were like, well, I had these few ideas I was going to bring into work. Maybe I should try them on stage <laughs> first, but it just seems like it would, how do you set it up? Well, in uh, in a stand up form. I, I, some people might be able to do that. It helps with jokes. So yeah. like, you know, every script, every comedy script got to have jokes. And if the joke can be, even if it's your joke, if it can be put into the mouth in a believable way into the character, then it can, you can definitely do that. For sure. Well, that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about structure. Let's, what's a simple way to explain the process? Because maybe there's someone out there who wants to learn a little something about, well, how do you actually come up with an idea and then flesh it out? So what? What would that process be? Say you had an idea for an episode and you bring it in. What happens first after you've mentioned your idea? So it depends. So sometimes <laughs> yeah. you go in, you bring it, you bring up the idea. People go, no. And then they move <laughs> on. Other times it creates a discussion. Usually showrunners that I've worked with have been great with this. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a different kind of showrunner and person who's running the room yeah. every time, but mm -hmm. have been great with humoring and really talking it out to see if it was sustainable for an episode. So one of the things that you might think be would be sustainable for an episode might not be. And right. it, it's crazy because sometimes the more specific you are, the less sustainable it was. Oh, and sometimes wow. sometimes you can go in and you, you come up with like a very simple concept. Like, I don't know, someone really wants these expensive pair of shoes, but they can't afford it. Very simple mm -hmm. concept. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of places you could go with that. You come in with someone wants an expensive pair of shoes and they can't afford it. So they decide that they're going to become a street performer and they're starting to sing and then someone like steals their wallet and then they have to chase up. You, you do a lot of that and then you start finding holes and reasons that it wouldn't work. So sometimes simpler was better. So we present the idea. 
let's say the idea gets a lot of excitement or a lot of it sparks a lot of discussion then you you move on to what would the beats of this story be like mm-hmm. how do we incorporate our all the characters what where's the tension in the story like how how would this lay out and then what are the act breaks like mm-hmm. what and the act breaks usually it's usually like a very heightened moment where the character is doing like something everything's going super well nothing can go wrong and then of course womp womp something's going to go wrong mm-hmm. eventually or the opposite where they're at a very very low point it's like oh, nothing's going to go right and then they figure it out you know and mm-hmm. so it was working towards those act breaks, which some people say not to do, but when it comes to TV, eventually you're going to be working towards an act break. It's just going to happen. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, so we do story story area and then an outline, which yeah. is like a fleshed out story area with jokes and location. So we know. And then the, the, the way that it changed is in a single cam, we would do a script eventually. And then we would all punch up the script, which means like put more jokes and like give ideas about it. And then we do a table read and then you rewrite it a million times after that. And then in the multicam verse, we would do the outline and we would have the script and we would do meetings first with like props and stuff like, well, what would we need for this script? Like, Mm -hmm. and it was different because in single cam, we would usually do that like afterwards Mm -hmm. after the script's been okayed. Yeah. Okay. How often, because I know that um, like on Friends, because they were multi-camera and they were filming in front mm-hmm. of an audience. If they did a scene and like, ah, oh, that joke got a tepid response, let's change it. They would redo it. Is that something that's really common or is that something that was kind of unique to certain shows like Friends or whatever? Not only common, vital. That is like what makes yeah. a multi-cam. So the, you'll have the writers on stage in a multi-cam and they're very quickly, that joke didn't work. And the way that our show did it, we would two things we'd either we'd have writers on page and pitch it in real time and we also would all have these alts we called an alt sheet that we right. would turn in the night before where we're like it's these jokes don't work here are alternative jokes that could work and mm-hmm. so they have like a whole sheet that they could pick from mm-hmm. yeah so, since you you saw this so i'm wondering what the audience reaction is because i've not been to a taping of a sitcom before so when the audience sees the scene play out it's like okay you know tepid response to a joke and so they're going to redo the scene there's a new joke there like maybe i don't know how many times they they go through it i don't know if they do five takes with five different jokes if that were to happen if multiple takes and with with three different jokes or four different jokes or whatever were to happen does the audience start kind of losing energy which is kind of counterintuitive to we want to get a reaction from but they're seeing the scene again and again and they're getting bored with it like what, how do you make um, it work if that happens? If that happens? I'm actually, I'm actually the worst person to ask that because, because of COVID, we never had an audience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, the whole entire time we shot season two and the time they shot season one, they're, they're working on season three right now. I'm not quite sure if they have an audience or not, mm-hmm. but we kept getting, they're like, oh, maybe we'll have an audience. And then it's like, there's a new variant <laughs> so, then, <laughs> yeah, so never sure. mind so Oof. i didn't get to experience that part of it but from what i've heard like anecdotally it is a process like you want it to be as punchy and funny as possible but usually you only do like one one alt it's not okay. like we're like running through a million so they're going okay. to see a different joke but not the same scene over and over and over and over again so with an audience or not the people on set are having to really have their eyes on how the scene is playing out and saying like, I've just got to, or we have just have to go by our gut instinct here, especially when there's COVID yeah. and there's no audience. You have to go like, well, I think this joke is going to work the best and let's, 
Let's see if it does. Pretty much. Yeah. And uh, there's so many people on sets too. So sometimes they, they'll laugh, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like, okay, we know that this is good. And then sometimes you can see the actors light up or the actors will laugh right. or break or something. And you're like, okay, this is, you this joke to, clearly yeah. works. Yeah. You have to pick up when, when the energy is in the moment and when it's not. Exactly. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. They got to edit the version that had the energy and the one that felt right. Well, that's awesome. This has been really great talking to you and learning about all this. And you're the first person who's come from the sitcom world to lay this out for, oh, for people. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'm glad that everyone's had a chance to hear it, especially from someone that I knew back in South Carolina. It's so great. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. It's the end of the episode. It's time to create something together. So let's, okay. maybe I could pitch a couple of ideas and you can right. say, here's how this maybe would go. All right, let's try it. So the, the difficult part, of course, is there is not a defined show with a specific cast. We don't know the characters. So it's not exactly how it would go in the real yeah. world. But if we're pitching, if I come in and say, let's say it's a show about a diverse group of friends. Okay. You got a couple of black people, you, know, you have a couple of Asian people, a couple of Hispanic people. Yeah. One white person. So they feel left out this time. <laughs> You're the minority now. <laughs> yeah. But the show's not about that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the cast of characters, so to speak. Okay. Loosely. Let's say they're in New York. So here's one idea, uh, just because I have a stand-up joke about it. A black guy and one of the characters, when he walks down the street, he notices that people who wear Black Lives Matters shirts never say hello when he says hello to them. That, of course, wouldn't be a whole storyline. Yes. And there's no like, what if, but maybe that could be like the C story of an episode. Yeah, a bit, the B story. We usually do like A and B in the shows I've worked with, but, but okay, sometimes they, C, but yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah, so it'd be a B story. It, wouldn't be, it couldn't be a main story. It could be like the diversion from the main story. And, it, and so that, I guess, could get fleshed out. as like, well, how would it be like, okay, how does this guy try to, does he get in his head about it and he tries to get someone else wearing a shirt to say hey to him or to, like how do how would that get fleshed out if they said yes to the idea if, if i was the one pitching on it i would say that he has this discussion with his friends they dismiss him you mm -hmm. need at least some people to say no that can't be true i think uh, you're being crazy and so what would they do you'd want to do an experiment and he's mm -hmm. like all right i want you asian guy or you white guy to wear a black lives matter shirt walk down the street past my neighbors who never say hello to me but always wear the shirt and i want to see if they say hello to you and so mm -hmm. it either proves his point or it doesn't prove his point <laughs> and then they could say let's say it does prove his point and it's like okay okay you know he it's because he's a white guy let's try it with an asian guy let's see if they're all racist against everyone or if they have like an internal racism against <laughs> black people that they don't even recognize you know so it would just <laughs> spiral from there <laughs> okay and then it's just coming up with ideas and seeing basically if it was producible. Yeah, basically. That's how I would pitch on it. Like, mm -hmm. it will, like how would he experiment it? Where's the com where's the funny coming from? And the funny, that's, it feels like a very Larry David moment. Yeah. Where, like, he could run out and he'd be like, you said hi to him. You said hi to him and you didn't say hi to me. And you could, you could see where the fun comes from. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's a really good thing to point out. You could see where the fun comes from. Yes. That is probably the most distinct way to describe comedy creation because mm -hmm. whether you're doing online comedy but especially if it's stand-up or improv or sketch or a movie or a show well, where does the fun come from in this idea and if it's not yeah. obvious 
then you your turn has to or your your take on it an approach to it either has to be so funny which this is where i think always sunny in philadelphia nails it oh yes because <laughs> like sometimes the premise is sort of like that's pretty messed up a person today you call him a jerk <laughs> but with that show you're just laughing about it. exactly uh, it's sort of the same with larry david stuff but oftentimes you want it to be so obvious like if it's a if it's an improv scene or a sketch you want people to get it immediately it's like well where's where's the where's the funny coming from that's a great yeah. way to put it yeah yeah, yeah. where's the joke and then just as an additional thing shows about race since i have worked you know specifically on a show that dealt a lot with race subverting expectations is always very funny so mm -hmm. while he's for this character black characters freaking out he's like i swear these neighbors they wear these shirts they pretend they they are about it they're they pretend to be woke but they're asleep they're lying <laughs> and then it would turn out like when he confronted them that maybe he does not clean up after his dog or something like that so they don't like him you know it's not black people it's you you know something like that there it is Spencer, yeah. thanks so much for being on the podcast you're welcome this is really fun thanks for having me where is the funny coming from? That is the best way to describe it. What a great chat with Spencer Taylor, who you can follow on Twitter and on Instagram at Spencer Taylor. That's S-P-N-C-A-T-A-Y-L-A -A -A for both. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is. And follow me on Twitter at Jason Farr Jokes and Instagram at Jason Farr Picks. Also subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. We have some fun episodes coming up, including next week with Michael Serpe of You Are Not Alone. We talk about that and more. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. Jason Farr.